I, uh, I have to admit, that was a little bit like, uh, I don't know, like maybe the turkey and the dressing is still hanging over. I mean, I'm just going to call it as I see it and hear it, right? And so I'm just going to warn you, I'm cocked and loaded. If you're still sleeping, you probably ought to get with it, wake up, do a jog in your place there or something. Because we're celebrating the birth of our Savior. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if we can't sing about that with heart and voice and soul, what can we sing about? I mean, I don't want to fuss too much. But there's a place for, as my granddaddy used to say when he'd get in the pulpit, a little holy... Fussing, a little complaining. And I don't do it a lot, but I just want to tell you, if your heart is so consumed with the things of this world and you are so downtrodden, there's only one source of relief. And I urge you to turn to Him now. Right now. The message is worthless. The sermon is worthless to you if your heart is not submitted to Him now. So, I don't know if during the introduction or of the sermon or maybe as, as I'm even saying these words, if you might think and, and prepare yourself, but let's get prepared. I'm not asking for a hallelujah fest, just a, just a little smile every now and then, a little knock the frost off a little, and let's, uh, let's realize the, the celebration that we're undertaking. All of creation, and I think this might be our problem this morning, has been enslaved to sin for over 4,000 years. With the faithful choice to break the covenant of works, Adam has plunged man into separation from God. Man was not simply separated from God, but was the sworn enemy of the Creator. It would appear at first that there would be no hope and that the scheme of Satan had totally destroyed and fouled up God's glorious creation. And then we read the words of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is what he said to the serpent, to that serpent of old, to Satan himself. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise or strike at his heel. In this, at the time of our passage in Luke 126, it had been 4,000 years since those words were spoken. I, I mean, that should uh, cause us to pause. 4,000 years had passed. This was a 4,000-year-old promise. The kernel of the hope of the gospel was planted in this promise. But it was 4,000 years without answer, without realization. But the kernel was planted, and it was bearing fruit in the heart of those who had their faith in Yahweh, the covenant God. But even for the faithful, 4,000 years is a very, very long time. 
Maybe God cannot deliver on His promise. Maybe God decided to withdraw His kindness and His grace. Maybe the plan of God has failed to deliver His people from sin and death. The people of God had not only received the promise that was given to Adam and to Eve, but they had also received a further defined promise in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, when the Scripture reads, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, and in you, through you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. The promise to Abraham was refined and made clearer as his life unfolded. And Isaac was born. The promised son who would carry the gospel of the promise of a Messiah forward to the next generation. And after Isaac, we, we see that, that God continued His sovereign plan of bringing His Messiah into the world through the lineage of Abraham, by blessing Isaac's son, Jacob. And Jacob was the father of twelve sons who became the foundational generation of the tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel, the nation which God had selected out of all of the nations of the earth to bring about His promise, His Messiah. Through time, this one family was multiplied, just as God had promised, and Abraham became a great nation. The faithful among the children of Israel continued to believe God's promise through the hardest days of slavery in Egypt, wandering in the desert. While they were conquering the land of Canaan, God had promised that the seed of Eve would crush the head of Satan. God had promised Abraham that he would, he, he would make him the father of many nations, not just one nation, but the promise was that he would be the father of many nations. God had made these promises, and the faithful continued to believe even through the hard times which separated them from that original deposit of a kernel of the gospel in Genesis 3, verse 15. God had promised the hope of the gospel, and the faithful remnant of Israel had faith in the Word of God. But 4,000 years is a long time to wait. It's longer than any of us can even imagine. We measure time in days, weeks, months, year, decade, four score. I mean, 4,000 years passed. It's a long time, even for the faithful. Had God simply failed in His attempt at saving His people from their greatest enemy, the people of Israel had many shadows and types pointing them toward the truth of the gospel. They could see in the great prophet Moses the promise of an even greater prophet. The people had the Levitical priesthood to make it clear that they had need of a mediator between God and sinful man. The sacrifices prompted them toward the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. 
And the Lamb of God that they waited for would not only cover sin, but would remove sin. The shadows were all around the Old Testament people, all around and covering the landscape. God did not leave them without a clear witness of the gospel. But the fact remains, 4,000 years had passed. God had not delivered on His promise. It had even been 400 years since He had opened His mouth and spoken to a prophet. There was no king ruling in Israel. There was a mere shadow of a king under the control of as a puppet in the hand of Caesar. And the hope of a coming Messiah was fading, fading, fading. And then we reach our text this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. I'm going to preach a four-part series entitled More Than a Child. And the first of those messages this morning, coming from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, is entitled, And You Shall Call His Name. Follow in your text. Listen to these words. 4,000 years. And the climax is here. This is how it reads. Notice the lack of celebration. Notice there was no great birth in a great palace, in a great city like Jerusalem. Notice these things as we read. Listen to this. In the sixth month, the sixth month after Elizabeth was, had conceived John the Baptist, the dating here is being dated for us. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee. A fisherman region, poor people, servants, farmers, the downtrodden. And he sent him to a city called Nazareth. The wrong side of the tracks. The poorest of the poor. The despised. The despicable. What good can come from Nazareth? He sent him to a virgin who was betrothed to a man, engaged to a man, united to a man without sex, but in every other way. His name was Joseph. He was of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, 
And of his kingdom there will be no end. Four thousand years. Over two thousand years since David had been promised a king that would rule forever. And a virgin woman, 19 or so years old, maybe less, poor, downtrodden, outcast, wife of a soon-to-be wife of a farmer. And so she says, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Think of the fear. Think of the feelings. Think of the thoughts that she must have had flood her mind. God Almighty will overshadow you. His power will infuse you. Overtake you. Overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The promise of the ages was being fulfilled in this setting. A small farming village in the region of Galilee. An angel appears to a young woman who lives in humble, even poor conditions. And the announcement of the promise of the ages is given in this place to this woman at this time. Only God designed a plan like this one. Only God can do the marvelous work of this redemption. I mean, let's look at this text. Let's dig deep inside of it. And let's see the answer to, and you shall call his name. Let's pray again and ask God to be with us. Father, this is your word. We are your servants. Let it be done unto us as you have willed. Open our hearts. Open our minds. Make us believe that we might have hope in your gospel, which does rule and reign through Christ forever. Amen. I want to bring you a simple outline, but a very complicated message. The first point in the outline, an announcement is made. An announcement is made. Look at verse 26 through 33. The place of the announcement is inconspicuous. I mean, if you look at verse 26, you're in Nazareth, which is, again, a small little village. What good can come from Nazareth was the old saying, although Jonah the prophet had probably come from Nazareth or around Nazareth. They didn't believe great people came from a little place like Nazareth. It was not in the region of the kings, which was Judea. It was not in Bethlehem. It was in Nazareth. That's where the story begins. We begin at Bethlehem. We sing about Bethlehem. That's where he was born. But you've got to remember, his father and his mother, his earthly father and his mother, lived in a little community. And we might say like Ohatchee or like Piedmont. Not to equate the two. I know people from Ohatchee wouldn't appreciate that. 
I'm just trying to give you some perspective. Small. Meaningless. As we might see it. What good can come from a place like that? That's kind of a thought. It's far from the place that was expected, isn't it? Even, even by those who were faithful and who were keeping to the promises of God and who were tracking the coming birth of the Messiah, they were looking in the wrong place for the beginning. The beginning was in a small, inconspicuous place. And so the setting of this announcement is here. And then we see the person the announcement was made to, and she is insignificant. <laughs> Mary was poor. She was young. Ladies, don't get offended. She was a woman. I mean, if you're going to announce the birth of a king in any day, those three things are not the person criteria for the person you're looking to announce to. Young, poor, and a woman. Even in our day, you wouldn't do that. Think about in their day. Think about in their world where women were seen and never heard. And God, in His sovereignty, put a plan together to reveal Himself in this special way, in this inconspicuous little farming village to this insignificant little girl. Next time you start feeling sorry for yourself, you begin to believe, what can God do with somebody like me? Now, you're not Mary. There's going to be no second birth of the Messiah. But it gives hope, doesn't it? You may be here with no college degree. You may be here and you work a very blue-collar job. You may be here and you live on the wrong side of the tracks. And I'm telling you, God appeared to one no better, probably worse than you. To announce the promise of the ages. The very first person. Not to Joseph, to Mary. Not to Jerusalem, but to Nazareth. Not in a palace, but in a little humble shack. He came to her. I mean, I'm not trying to grow your self-confidence. But there's nobody in the room that can stoop as humbly and as lowly as this young lady. And he spoke to her. He came to her. He loved her. He used her. He chose her. An insignificant woman, but yet chosen for an eternally significant task. Mary, though, is not sinless. The Roman Catholic Church makes error here, don't they? Worshiping her as a deity, or almost deity, if you heard them tell the story. Though, they believe she's sinless, and they pray to her in reverence to Christ, but they still pray to her as a mediator. She is not sinless. There is nothing of that in the Scriptures. We never see that. Matter of fact, her lineage is very clear. She's from her father's side, a child 
uh, of, of the line of David. On her mother's side, obviously, from the tribe of Levi. Why do I say that? Because Elizabeth, her cousin, was married to a Levi. And the mixture of those two tribes was allowed because the Levitical priests did not inherit anything. Therefore, they could marry, intermarry with any tribe. Other tribes were forbidden from intermarriage. But the Levitical priesthood was allowed to inter- intermarry and continue their line. And so these, her lineage is very clear. These, the picture is there. She's not sinless. She's a woman, very poor, young, insignificant. Mary's not special in any sense except that God chose her as the vessel that would carry the promised seed of the gospel. I can't help but think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says, we in earthen vessels carry this heavenly treasure, the gospel. I mean, she's the earthen, she's the most earthen of all the vessels, if you might say it that way. The most common, the most insignificant. And this is the mother of our Lord. The place is inconspicuous. The person that is revealed to is insignificant. In contrast to that, in these first verses, we see that the God who made this announcement is glorious. Look how it starts in verse 26. God sent Gabriel to the city of Galilee. God is the one who moved to start the story that we celebrate as Christmas. This wasn't a man idea. This wasn't a man action. This wasn't any way a, a, a position where man had finagled God into a trap where he had to do something. God, after 400 years of silence, after 4,000 years of speaking this promise of the gospel, said, it's time, Gabriel. Go to Nazareth, that city, city of Galilee, to a woman a virgin named Mary. God starts the story. God is the one who draws near. There's nobody in this story drawing near to God. Mary is not drawing near to God. Look at the text. Mary seems to be carrying on her daily activity. She's caught off guard. She's caught unaware. She's shocked that there's an angel in her house all of a sudden. She's not coming near to God. She's not drawing near to Him. God is drawing near to us. You see, the DNA of Christianity is woven into the whole story, isn't it? Nobody seeks after God. No, not one. This is not a religion where men made up a way to come to the heavenlies. This is a place where the heavenlies came down to earth. God started the story. God approached a virgin. God sought her. She did not seek God. She didn't choose this office. She didn't choose this role, we might say. God is the one who draws near. God is the sovereign architect, we might say, of every detail of our redemption. He's the architect of the whole design. A beautiful design that could only be designed by His hand because no man would come up with a story like this. No man. If Peter, who I believe gave the story to Luke, if Peter had wanted to make a story up, I had the sneaking suspicion that the story would have started in Jerusalem 
with a princess and a palace. Logical, right? Very, very logical. Only God comes up with a plan like this. He is sovereign over salvation. The place is inconspicuous. The the woman is insignificant. God is glorious. And the child of the announcement is magnificent. I mean, we all get excited about a child. Our family celebrated the birth of a a new little nephew to me this, this week. Exciting. I mean, we were telling everybody about him. It's beautiful. But he holds not even a candle to this child. Magnificent. Almost beyond description. Let's look at verses 28 through 33. Look in your text there in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And she tried to... uh, She tried to... Figure out what sort of greeting this might be. And then, verse 31, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek name parallel to the Hebrew name Yahshua, Joshua. The word, Yahshua, means God is our helper. It became God our Savior. This is a magnificent child. This is a beautiful story. God helps us or God saves us. Jesus will be called by His name. God saves. Jesus will not only be called by this name, but he will be called the Son of the Most High. I mean, can you? I can't even imagine. I've tried to think this week about it. I can't. I can't even picture what emotions must be going through Mary at this moment. An angel burst there, messenger of light, as we know them as, glowing forth with the resident dew of the glory of heaven in your living room. Not only that, but they call, He calls you the favored one of the Lord. But you view yourself as poor, unaccepted, average or less than, and a woman, and now you're favored of the Lord. Maybe you're prideful enough to think you deserve to be favored of the Lord. She knew. I'm favored. How? I don't live in a fancy house. I don't drive a Rolls Royce. I don't wear expensive jewelry. I don't have fine clothes or eat fine food. How am I favored? I'm poor. I'm young. I'm not even married. I have no children. How am I favored? I mean, this is what's going on in her living room. And then he says, you're going to have a child. Swallow hard. I'm no rocket scientist, Gabriel, but 
there's an action that has to take place. It ain't taking place. You're going to call his name Jesus. Well, that's ambitious for a culture where names mean something to call your own son God saves. It's pretty ambitious. And by the way, he'll be the son of the Most High. We have no idea the impact on a teenage girl, the fear that must have flooded her heart. We tend to think of it as she just got all excited like we do when we pull the pregnancy test and say, oh, we're pregnant. Hallelujah. You didn't get to go back to high school, wear your prom dress, have your baby. She's looking at being shunned by her family, by her friends, by her whole little village. She's looking at being an outcast. She's looking at being destitute. And she's done nothing wrong in this regard. She's pure. She's a virgin. The announcement of this child upset the apple cart, didn't it? It rocked her world, we might say. It changed her attitude. Things have gone way over the track. She doesn't know where this thing's headed. But it's a magnificent child. Jesus, God saves. Son of the Most High. You will call His name Jesus, and He'll be the Son of the Most High. And then look at the description. It goes further. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. To you that may mean nothing. To her, being of the tribe of Judah. She now knows what's going on. I'm going to have the child that is the bearer of the promise that was made at the garden. The offshoot from the stump of Jesse. Second Samuel seven, twelve through sixteen clearly promised David, God did. We call it the Davidic covenant. This is what it says. And I will call him my son, and his throne shall be forever. His throne. His dominion shall be forever. Mary, though you are a virgin, you're going to have a son whose name is Jesus, who is the Son of the Most High, and he will inherit the throne of his father David. This is a magnificent child. This is not your run-of-the-mill child that's going to grow up, play Little League, get a scholarship, go to college, and be successful. His one and only. He is unique. There's no one like him. And to go further, the text says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Daniel chapter 7, God had said through the vision given to Daniel, the prophet, 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Mary, this is your baby. This is your son. This is that magnificent child promised in Genesis through your father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Delivered the promise to your, your forefather David. And now he is here. He's not here near you. He's here in you. The hope of all nations. Now we kind of know why the second point is there. A question is asked. An announcement is made and a question is asked. This is not a question of lack of faith. Look at what she says in verse 34. How will this be? She doesn't question that it will be. She knows it will happen. But how will it be? I'm a virgin. This is not doubt. This is not unbelief. This is a desire for clarification. I accept it, it's your will, but how will it be? Tell me. The question is a confession of the impossible nature of the announcement. I hear what you're saying. You're obviously from God. I'm going to have His Son help me understand now that I believe it. How will this happen? That's the question. Which leads us to our third point. An answer is given. Isn't that nice and neat and packaged for you and I? Can you imagine the fear in her heart? All the things I've told you about her this morning, there on her knees, trying to comprehend that she's going to have a child without having any part in having the child, chosen vessel of God to bear His Son, and she's asked this question, and you almost it's almost an instinctive question, it, it's almost not even thought. It's just a gut reaction. And then he begins the answer. In the very next verse. <clears throat> verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The presence of the Almighty will overshadow you. That's as far as we can go. In how the incarnation happened. That's it. If you go any further, you're playing and dabbling in heresy. God came over her and the Holy Spirit did a work. That's all we can say. Therefore, because He does that, you will have a son and his name shall be holy, set apart, 
I mean, you have a child, and it grows up, and it's a little different. That's one thing. But to have this announcement in a small town, can you imagine the fear, the questions? Ladies, I mean, we, we always like to look at it from Joseph's side because he wants to know who done it. Think of it from the woman's side. God in my womb, born in my home, nursed at my breast, pitter-pattering down my hall, watching me cook. Holy. 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 In my house. The child will be called Holy Son of God. In other places, he's emphasized to be the Son of Man. So let's don't lose that. But this morning, the text emphasizes he is the Son of God. He's 100% divine. The power for the birth is supplied from God. Not from Joseph. And not from necessarily Mary. Though it is does seem that her, her egg was fertilized in some way. Though we don't know how. Completely. There's, there's the statement, the birth, the power, the Holy Spirit, verse 35, will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The power of the Holy Spirit caused this birth, planted this seed, as it is called in Genesis. Your seed will be an enmity with him and your seed will crush his head and his seed will strike at your, at your son's heel. That's the promise of the ages 4,000 years in development, and now it's here. It's what we're celebrating. It's what we're talking about. It's what we're singing about. This is the, what this season is given to in our tradition. I, I just want to take from this. Uh, we see that Mary submits completely. To his will. And so I just want to ask this question. Very simple. Who is Christ to you? Who is he to you? Would your definition of who he is match this definition? Second question for application. Some of you have prayed, believing the promise of God for years. Ten years? I don't want to make light of it. Twenty years? Some of you longer. Forty years? Fifty years? And today you're ready to quit because He hadn't delivered. You see the point. Four thousand years to God is nothing. He has made a promise 
He will deliver. The faith given by God to a girl as young and as innocent and as inexperienced and as poor and as downtrodden as Mary. And her response is not, you can't do it. Her response is, how will you do it? And then, I'm your servant. Have your way. Do to me as you have said. And so I'm just asking you, has it been too long to wait for what he has promised? And I'm going to close with the application that now it's been 2,000 years. And some have fallen under the belief that he's not coming. Because time drags forward and things seem to just stretch end on end. 2,000 years is a long time, but it's half as long as they waited for him to come the first time. Are you waiting and watching for him to come? He came as a baby, grew up to be a man, died to take the sins of all those who would believe and remove that sin and give them righteousness that is his so they might stand before a holy God. And if you don't accept him, he's coming again, not as a baby, but as a full-fledged king who will at that moment set up his rule for all of eternity and he will banish his enemies forever we celebrate Christmas the birth the burial, the resurrection the ascension and in Christmas we celebrate his coming he is coming he is coming God keeps his word let's pray, Father we do close this service confessing that